how many businesses in this world can you give back with no ulterior motive and then ultimately have it turn into business in the future? That's probably the best thing that I could say of everything in our industry. Get involved with a board that you're passionate about. And it's amazing how your life will change. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, the podcast dedicated to simplifying the commercial real estate industry for the masses. Each week, we sit down with industry experts to dissect the many facets of commercial real estate and extract valuable lessons you can apply to your business. Whether you're a new or seasoned business owner or investor, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast will be your go-to resource for all your commercial real estate needs. Now, here are your hosts, Rafael Collazo and Jeff Walston. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Collazo, here with my co-host, Jeff Walston. How's it going, my friend? It's going great. Uh, can't complain. 2023 has started out wonderfully. Uh, blessed, uh, as I would like to say, uh, and uh, trying to survive this ice storm that we had here in Louisville, Kentucky. It's an interesting uh, thing that winter's been throwing at us. So what about you, Raphael? How's it going over there? Great, great. Yeah, it's been an interesting winter. I would say it's a little bit milder than I've remembered over the last couple of years, but you're right. The, the roads have been kind of slick. But as far as businesses goes, it's been very active in 2023, unlike what you see in the media. It seems like there's still a lot of activity out there. But uh, as far as our guests today, we're really honored and excited to have uh, – Patrick Setner, the uh, East, uh, executive vice president at CBRE. I believe he was located in Pittsburgh. I'm really excited to talk about him on a variety of different subjects. He's heavily involved in SIOR as well. Uh, so I know we'll touch on that uh, in the in the podcast interview as well. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, gentlemen. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so, for coming on. Oh, oh, absolutely. No, we're honored to have you. And and we had we had a few uh, back and forth to try to coordinate this, but we're really honored that we were able to get this in the books and, and get this going. So uh, one thing that I, we typically like to do when we first get started with the interview is we like to learn a little bit more about the person that's across the table from us. So if you don't mind kind of sharing your backstory, I think it'd be awesome. Absolutely. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, actually a small suburb of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my, my mom cleaned houses and my dad worked in a warehouse. So I honestly had no clue what my future was going to be like started tattying in uh starting in eighth grade and that's when my eyes started really opening up to a much broader world coincidentally i started caddying for some of the bigger uh contractors and developers in pittsburgh so that was kind of my first at least taste of real estate just hearing those gentlemen talk and go to college at a small liberal arts school called westminster college um the only school that kept recruiting me for track after I had knee surgery. So uh, one offer and I took it and was one of the best things I ever did. Gave me the opportunity to really get involved, uh, which I don't think I could have done at a larger school. Came out as a finance major, worked at uh, as a commercial lender for about five years, got my master's at WVU, and then got a taste of commercial real estate brokerage. And that was almost 28 years ago. And it has been a whirlwind ever since. I can only imagine. No, yeah. and and you, you you touched on the the fact that you know you 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 dove into the the the, the lending space. I'm sure that helped build some foundations for oh. you as you went into the brokerage career, because that's one of the things that you know a lot of people don't necessarily have a lot of background in. So if you can understand that side of the business, I'm sure it helps a lot. 
it did two things for me. Number one, I mean, I spent a year basically as a credit analyst, which at the time I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm sitting behind the desk for nine hours a day, five days a week. This is boring. However, I reviewed financial statements from small mom and pops to you know large multinational corporations and had to write reviews of those. So after a year, I really understood how companies operate, what their financial statements mean as it pertains to you know business, including real estate. And also what it did is gave me the opportunity to start my cold calling, which it's funny in banking, you don't have the same kind of goals that you have in commercial real estate brokerage. Uh, so making 10 to 20 calls a week, you were considered a superstar. And I realized I could do more than this. So it was a great background, but I knew that there was more out there for me. No, you said that there was a, you got the taste of commercial. Was there a particular deal that made you think, okay, I'm going from analyst now. I want to be a broker. Like, this is it. This is for me. 100%. There was a new development uh, or an area in uh, Pennsylvania called Cranberry Township, which, you know, in the mid 90s was starting to become one of the fastest growing suburbs, you know, in the Northeast. And, you know, that was part of my lending territory. So I met a uh, developer for one of the first office buildings going into that area. And coincidentally, uh, the broker that was part of that project actually had a small piece of the project. And the more I kept learning about the project and the more I kept talking with the broker who was part of it, I started realizing we're both kind of doing the same thing, but you know, his side seems a lot more enjoyable. Uh, definitely a little bit more on the risk side. And at that point in my life, I thought it was uh, well worth taking. So I basically then just cold called that broker nonstop for about six months uh, until he finally said, all right, I'm getting ready to do something new. You can come over with me. And I did 30 days after he went over and started a third party brokerage group of a developer in Pittsburgh. I was uh, his first hire. So it uh, worked out really well. Yeah, that's that sounds like a, a lot of excitement. Uh, did did you get to experience the development side of it, any of that deal? Like, did you get to go out and take a look or any of that stuff? Or? Oh, absolutely. And it's funny yeah. because we still laugh. I actually just toured that same building again with a client uh, two weeks ago and just oh, wow. laughing as I'm walking through the building because it's now it's the fourth Full building circle. of that development and the owner, she's still there. Um, but, uh, you know, just seeing what has grown around that area. Honestly, it was really yeah. exciting because it was just a one-off, which people were thinking, now nah, that's never going to work, but it mm -hmm. really worked. That's amazing. <laughs> no, you, you yeah. see that, you see that in cities across the nation where you, you see an area where historically maybe it wasn't, you know, it was either blighted or maybe it, there's just nothing out there. And then you look fast forward five to 10 years and it's just a wave of development that occurs. And, you know, I know here in, in Louisville, we have a section of our town called Nulu, which is near downtown which 10 years ago was definitely an area that was very blighted and now it's kind of the hip place that everyone wants to be and you see just buildings popping up everywhere it's unbelievable so yeah it's funny actually yeah. my partner uh, ended up working with some of the uh, brokers in that same area and we oh, sold yeah. a building there about a year ago so I had never heard of it until then but uh, as you said we ended up getting more for that building than we probably you know would have thought that we could have
Well, hey, yeah. you you, you got to capitalize yeah. on the market when it is, right? And then obviously the Absolutely. owners, I'm, sh- I'm sure the owners were very happy with what you guys were able to, or you know, they weren't buyers. disappointed. They weren't disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so you touched on a little bit from your your transition point. So you you, you I'm assuming it, at your previous career, you know, you, you most likely I'm assuming had a salary, and Correct. you know, you probably had you know performance metrics and bonuses and everything else, but you weren't heavily you know focused on you know, you kind of an eat what you kill type of environment. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about some of the struggles you faced as you were pursuing that new opportunity? So absolutely. Now, first and foremost, the smart thing was I was married about two years. My wife was making just a little bit more than I was at the bank, but we were just getting over basically scrimping and saving to pay off my student loans, uh, which we were able to do a little bit early, which was great. And so rather than go and buying that bigger house, we basically stayed in the townhouse uh, a couple extra years. And uh, it really was a little nerve wracking. I would be getting a yellow sticky note from my wife, who is a CPA, uh, on Monday. And it showed how much I could spend on lunches, haircuts, or whatever. And it better not be a negative number by the end of Friday. So she got me really disciplined and that helped tremendously. And the fun part about it was within two years of starting that, uh, we were finally able to get pregnant and I had Mm. turned the uh, corner and it was almost like tag team because when we first got married, I was like, there's no way she's going to be a stay-at-home mom. But, you know, a number of circumstances just came into play you know, from a positive standpoint for us. And by the time she hit month seven, she said, I think I want to stay home. And I'm like, well, commission wise, we can definitely do that. And it was a perfect transition. So ironically, that was the or July of 98. And she just went back to work uh, July of uh, 22. So uh, it was a she killed it as a stay at home mom. And now she's back and, you know, director of finance for a local uh, Catholic high school. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm glad that she's probably a little grateful she's back in the workforce. Get, keep her busy, I'm sure. It is funny because yeah. uh, she, she'll she complain a little bit, but then I'm like, wait, you're happier now than you've been in the past three years since the kids were all in college. And she's like, college, yeah, yeah, I probably am. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I kind of want to, I know that you primarily focus on office and industrial. Uh, what made you decide that's your primary focus within commercial real estate? So when I was first hired, again, the company uh, was Oxford Development Company, a prominent developer in Pittsburgh. Up until that point, they only, the only brokerage they did was for the buildings that they owned. So our group came in and started third-party brokerage. And the gentleman that was starting it, uh, his whole background was on office tenant rep. Um, And then there was another gentleman that his whole business was on industrial tenant rep. So they brought me on their team. And basically my job for the first two years was cold calling on both. So when you are spending your day making 50 to 100 calls on office and industrial only, and all within you know, specific submarkets, you know, it is amazing how after two years you know, being in an industry, you can say, wait, I actually am a market expert you know, on these particular sub markets. And 
it wasn't like that was my goal. It was just, that was my job to make calls, get as you know, much traction on certain projects as possible. But, you know, after that two-year time frame, I'm like, wait, I know every tenant office and industrial in the Parkway West corridor of Pittsburgh and the Northern corridor of Pittsburgh. So, you know what, I should probably focus on these areas. And it, it just was kind of like osmosis at that point in time. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Where no, you're, you're good. Go ahead. No, I know. I was just, I was just interested to, to kind of note on that. So when, when you first got with in the business, uh, was it was it more of just, you know, hit the ground running and just start, you know, making calls and, and you know, come, kind of fumble your way through? Was or was it more of a strategic type of, you know, approach? How did you approach that process of outreach? It was pure cold calling and not in a bad way, because uh, the biggest industrial project that was done in Pittsburgh, probably in decades at that point in time, was a little over a 500,000 square foot distribution center. And the industrial partner on our team got the listing on that. And it was so unique that, honestly, it was an easy cold call. I almost don't even call it a cold call call because I had a, you know, this was obviously before CoStar, you could do everything online. I had a stack of documents about this high with about eight names of companies and individuals on that. And I just went through that on a daily basis. So it was strategic in that the goal was to get information out on that building to basically every industrial tenant in Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. Um, but it's not like I sat down with, you know, the team, you know, when I was first hired and said, all right, here is the plan from A to Z that we're going to go through. Once they saw that I was not afraid to make calls and that I was actually fairly good at it. Um, candidly, after that first year, I'd only closed one deal. So candidly, I'm thinking I am horrible at this business. But at that point in time, they each, you know, came to me and said, hey, we want you to be part of our team and you're going to be getting X percent of every project that we're working on. So at the time, I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the history of mankind, because I'm like, these guys don't realize what they're doing. They're giving me money to be bad at a job. What I now realize is, unfortunately, in this industry, there aren't people who are okay just sitting down and making 50 to 100 calls during the first year of their business. And they knew that and they saw that and they're like, all right, this is a fairly intelligent guy and he's willing to do this. So um, it, as I said, it wasn't strategic, but it kind of turned into a strategic standpoint, you know, in that by making calls on that one building, candidly, most people were interested in it because they didn't know what this big building was. So I probably had more people who took the call um, that ultimately, you know, got to the point where I then knew the names of every real estate director or, you know, CFO or whatever the case might be of, uh, all the buildings in Western PA simply by letting them know about what was going on there. That's awesome. No. And I think, yeah. I think having something to call on and say, and kind of share with those insights is very helpful, especially for starting off. Cause I remember when I first started, I was just you know, to be quite honest, I was just pulling up numbers and just calling random. It was it was yeah. very much a, you know, not so much a value add, uh, you know, sharing to the, these individuals. And the reception wasn't always the greatest. But, you know, you learn how to, I guess, respond and, and react in, in situations when you're just on a, on a con having a conversation with people. And if you level with them on a human on a human level, a lot of times you can get a pretty decent response. Um, 
At least that's oh, you're 100 percent correct. No, I completely agree. I mean, when you are calling with information that people don't have, they might not want to take time to talk to you. But in a worst case scenario, they at least came out of that 10, 15, 30 second interaction with a little bit of information. So a year later, they're like, oh, hey, weren't you the person that was working on that distribution center? Yeah, actually, I was. Okay, great. Then they at least know who you are because you weren't just calling and saying, hey, I see that your lease is expiring in six months and Mm -hmm. I'm brand new to this business, but I'd love to help negotiate a new lease for you. That doesn't work as well as, you know, providing them with information. That's yeah, yeah, great insight on that front. So one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is obviously you've been operating in this in this market for quite some time, and you've seen the ebbs and flows over time as far as the office and industrial markets. So could you kind of maybe share some insights you've gained maybe over the last, let's say, five to 10 years about how the, the environment is shifting for both office and industrial? And obviously, you know, you're focused in the Pittsburgh area. So if you, you, you can touch on that, that'd be great. Absolutely. You know, I look at the shift from office and industrial into a merger, in essence, of the two, especially in our market. Uh, Flex space is really something that has been part of our submarket for, I would say, the past five to 10 years. And it has definitely picked up a lot of steam over the past four years. And one of the things that has helped me tremendously is, you know, as you guys had mentioned, you know, my primary background was other than that first distribution center that I was calling on, most of what I had done was office tenant rep work, uh, represented an insurance brokerage company for eight years across the country and, you know, did a lot of, you know, that type of work locally. So I understood the office market inside and out. My partner, Amy Broadhurst, she had spent the previous 10 years of her career doing nothing but Pittsburgh area industrial. So by the two of us teaming up together, you know, a little over five and a half years ago, we have been able to bring the best of both worlds to the flex market because we have a lot of companies that say, okay, I need an industrial building. And, you know, we find them the right industrial building. Then all of a sudden they realize, oh, wait, we're going to be building at 30,000 square feet of office. And what that's going to cost how many dollars a square foot to build at? Then when they do the math, they realize, wait, we're better off going into one of these flex buildings. We're like, yes, yes, you are. And that has been really eye opening over the past uh, three to four years because and, and honestly, even more so in the past year and a half, when you can't build out a even an office space within a you know an industrial building for under one hundred and ten dollars a square foot. So when you're looking at those kind of numbers, you might see a great warehouse building at the right location, uh, even having parking and say, OK, great, this is perfect. You know, it's 650 a square foot, but we have to add the office. Well, that's 10,000 square feet of office we're going to add into here. And, oh, that's 10,000 times one hundred and fifteen dollars a square foot. And that's just for the office. That's not even talking about upgrading uh, the electrical and docks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when you have buildings that were created specifically for flex, it's amazing how much more money you, you can be saved. And even though your rental rate may be a dollar or two more than what it is in the warehouse buildings, your out-of-pocket costs are significantly less. And it's been really fascinating to see how many groups have you know, started to realize that over uh, the past couple of years. 
Yeah. Was that one, the dollar per square foot that you're talking about, the 110 to 115, is that primarily in your market that you've been seeing as in Pittsburgh? I've actually or? seen that definitely in Pittsburgh, but I've also seen it. Uh, we have a, a client of ours that has a hundred locations throughout North America. Most are in the, oh, nice. you know, 10 to 25,000 square foot range, a couple larger manufacturing facilities. Uh, but we run into that same situation whereby we're like, okay, we're in 30,000 square feet now. We only need 20, uh, but we have to have 4,000 square feet of office. And you know, we saw that in Chicago as well. It was yeah. you know, at least $110 a square foot. You know, in New Jersey, you know, we would be excited if it was only $110 a square yeah. foot. So, you know, and it's interesting when you see those kind of construction costs, all of a sudden renewals become much more attractive than what we were thinking of before. And it's like, all right, if we took 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 square feet more than we really need, yeah. but we don't have move costs, we don't have the additional uh, cost to construct additional office. And let's be realistic, you know, just can, you know, push our uh, salespeople to kind of fill up the rest of the space. Or in yeah. some cases, you know, there's such a strong market. And we did this in one market whereby we took more than we needed because it was the only building that met all the criteria, but it was already subdivided. So within 30 days, we actually had a subtenant on the other side. So it's not something I would normally recommend as a uh, process for companies to go out, find space, find double what you need, and then sublease the other side. Uh, in this case, it really worked out well because it was such a tight market. But that's an example of things that, you know, would never have seen in the first 25 years of my career. But now, because the markets are different, you know, we're looking at transactions in a much more strategic manner than we ever did before. Yeah, that's nice. amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I can I can comment similar uh, here in our market. I mean, the flex market is very active. Um, and, and, you know, from, from what I've heard from other brokers that have operated in the space for a long period of time, you know, the percentage of warehouse versus office has continued to shrink its footprint over time. And you see some buildings here that are quote unquote functionally obsolescent, that maybe their ceiling heights aren't nearly as high as they need to be based on, you know, current demand for different for tenants in the marketplace. And then also the, 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 the percentage of warehouse or office. So I've seen buildings here that have 50% office and people are like, I don't need nearly that much office. If we can convert that over to you know, warehouse, then obviously that'd be more attractive. But then as an owner, you're saying, well, we built out all this office and now we got to tear it all right. out and you may not get the right price per square foot. So it's one of those things where it's kind of interesting to see. I mean, the, the, the real estate industry is a living, breathing entity. So over time, things shift and change and, you know, that's a great description. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it, it, like any industry, it really just, it, it evolves over time. And, and, you know, we get, we get a bad rap in the commercial real estate business is thinking that, you know, it's, it's a very slow moving industry. It is, but it's a, it's pulsating, right? It's slowly moving and shifting over time. So. Oh, I can tell you, you know, things that, you know, we were doing 25, 30 years ago, in some cases, yeah, there's some similarities, but it is amazing the number of changes that have occurred. And I, I would say on average, it's you know every five to 10 years, there are a little bit of additional nuances that have to come into play. There are certain submarkets that go from being completely not considered to being the hottest and others who uh, everyone's going there. And now you're like, eh, do we really want to go there? And mm -hmm. you know we're seeing that with CBD office right now. Uh, it, it is a situation where, 
Yes, in a perfect world, every one of our cities across the country would be back up to 75 to 80% office utilization. But part of the reason that's not happening is groups are realizing that if I'm coming into the office three days a week, do I need to be downtown paying the highest you know, parking rates? Or can I be in the nicest suburb, have more amenities, have free parking, and still have, have a really cool office? It is such a interesting time to be in the office market right now. Um, you know, I've talked to so many really, really intelligent long-term veterans, both inside with different entities as well as other brokers. And we're all getting a better feel as to what's going to happen. But anybody that says they know exactly what's going to happen is a little crazy at this point in time because we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, it, at some point, something's going to have to happen as far as the, the space in, in these major metro areas, like you've mentioned. I mean, here in Louisville, even before the pandemic, we were having issues as far as office utilization was concerned. And now, post-pandemic, again, that 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 problem's been exacerbated. I know the the local leadership, you know, change that we that happened. There's a new mayor in, in, in office. I know they're one of their biggest pushes over the next, you know, several years is to really push for the real revitalization of some of these projects because you have these dead zones where it's like these massive office buildings that just maybe are 40 percent full and then you have like you know nulu and then there's another section of town where it's called west main street where there's a lot of hotel activity and stuff like that so there's a lot of activity in those areas and then you have this middle area where it's like <laughs> there's no i mean there's just office buildings so and it, and it's interesting because you know, all of us, when we focus on our markets, start getting a little bit worried. You're like, ah, something has to happen mm -hmm. because this is only happening to us. When I was traveling, you know, the previous year and a half on a regular basis across the country for SILR, I was amazed at the similarities to CBDs from city to city to city. It didn't matter if it was Pittsburgh or Denver. New York City or Omaha, St. Louis or Raleigh, nothing was going like what we saw in 2019, but none of them were that much better. It was really, really oddly similar from market to market. And hopefully that's going to, you know, you know, improve not just you know here in Pittsburgh, but throughout all markets across the country, because there is a core that is so important to each of our cities. Absolutely. So I, you touched on uh, a market trending of the per square foot for the build outs of office space. Uh, you kind of spoke on uh, talking about the office space and how they're kind of redefining that. Is there any other market trends within the office and industrial space that you've seen since you have been uh, traveling around the, the U.S. that you might want to mention? Well, what's really been interesting is I, I almost wish I was an architect uh, and started that about two years ago because architects now have really been given the go-ahead to really think as innovatively as possible to come up with what is going to entice employees to come back to the office, what is going to be a selling feature for future employees. So they're not just doing your basic standard couple new offices, carpet and paint anymore. They are going out and coming up with some really innovative plans. Then what's happening is those plans 
can only candidly be implemented by landlords that have access to capital. So when we hear the flight to quality, you know, there's many reasons for it. But one of the main reasons is some of these great designs that are coming out from these architects, they're not cheap. And, you know, they are going to require significant investment. Now, what's happening is because companies are taking less square footage than they did before, and that's actually part of the plans that these groups are, these architects are coming up with. So let's say a group needs 20% less square footage than they need before, but they really want this truly innovative design. The landlord's going to say, hey, that's fine. We're going to end up providing you an additional $30 a square foot or $40 a square foot in TI more than we would have two years ago. But we're also not going to do a five-year lease for you and probably won't do a seven-year lease for you. So now you're seeing these companies doing 10-plus-year lease terms with really cool, innovative space, but it's at less square footage than they were before. So even though their base rental rate is higher, you know, we're not rocket scientists in our business. It's simply rental rate times square footage, you know, yes, operating expenses in addition, but if your total square footage is less and your rental rate is higher, but net net, if you are paying, if you're a company and you're paying the same in 2023 than you are in 2019 for phenomenal space that really attracts your employees, that's a win. And so it'd be great if all landlords can do that, but candidly, it's only the ones that have access to capital. Absolutely. Yeah, we had we had the honor of interviewing another gentleman by the name of Jeremy Neuer. He's in, I believe he was at CBRE at the time in, in New York City and he or New Jersey, I should say. Sorry. Okay. He was talking about that similar, uh, you know, dynamic where he would see these law firms where, you know, the, the, the conversation was, oh, we should try to see if we can get into, you know, more affordable space. But in reality, when you look at your biggest line item, which is your hiring, your 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 wage if you get into one of these really attractive and dynamic spaces, it helps with your recruiting efforts. And a lot of times what, what this gentleman was saying was that, um, you know, you were able to get the top quality candidates you wanted. And a lot of times you were able to pay them less than you would have otherwise. So it's one of those things where it's not just a dollars and cents analysis. You have to figure how is this space going to impact my biggest expense, which is really, you know, the, 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 the people I pay wages to. So. And it's, you really have to look at the market dynamics. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's be realistic. I'm Gen X. We're the smallest generation there is. As baby boomers are, you know, starting to finally retire out and Gen X gets to the point where, okay, we can't backfill every job that a baby boomer is going to leave. Then it's like, all right, are millennials big enough to take up all those jobs? No. So we need to come up with something that is going to entice Gen Z to want to work into that particular space, to go to that high-end law firm, to go to that, you know, financial institution, you know, do you want to come to Pittsburgh and be in a class B building, or do you want to go to Denver and be in a class A building? Okay. You probably would take less money to be in Denver in a cool building and be able to then go hiking and skiing on the weekends. These are the kind of decisions that uh, employees are now making, and employers have to be aware of that. Many of them candidly are. That's great. That's, that's good to hear. Read in a, a building magazine and, and seeing the photos of them actually converting the center area that you would typically have some offices and such. They're taking those out 
and actually put in amenities like coffee bars and then like couches and and it's almost turning into like a hotel lobby area but it's within the office so they're doing that uh and i thought that was pretty neat and then they're converting the exterior offices that may be uh, pretty large and creating uh mini or kiwi or tiny offices uh to just fit a desk in there and maybe a chair for somebody to to work in a private office but i found that pretty unique that that was kind of the trend that they were heading down um and it's interesting it to, one of the yeah one of the reasons for that trend is no matter what we want to hear and think about the days of employees going into the office five days a week, 12 hours a day, is just not going to happen. So we've had all of us, and I don't care what generation you're part of, we got used to being innovative as to how we work. And I know with all the traveling I did, there were so many lobbies and coffee shops and Delta Sky Clubs, et cetera, that I worked out of. So you get used to that. So when you're coming into the office, the idea of having to be in that 12 by 12 office, even with a nice view for 12 hours a day, five days a week, that's not important. When I'm going into the office, I want to be able to run into our appraisal team or our investment team or some of our retail teams to learn things that I don't know and give them the opportunity to pick my brains because in doing so, we then are all much more educated on the overall market area. And in turn, that's just a win for all of our clients. But if we're all in our own private offices, you know, that's less likely to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. So one thing that I'm I'm really interested on, and, and obviously you've you've touched on it briefly with your involvement in the SIOR organization, is you know what what made you decide to really pursue that as something that that you were interested in early in your career, and also what are some of the benefits you've experienced from that from the organization? So the same gentleman that I told you brought me into this industry. They were both. SIORs. And so they gave me that goal. Literally the day I was hired, they're like, all right, it takes you five years minimum to get into this organization. You have to have production of this level, which is going to take you four years to do, et cetera. So I'm like, all right, that's a goal. So I set the goal and actually got into SIOR, actually met the production level prior to having five years in the business. So I actually became a member the day that was my fifth anniversary into the industry. So it's like, all right, goal achieved. Now what? Uh, so I go to my first conference and I realized I don't know anybody. And so I just popped myself into an education committee meeting just because I didn't know what else to do. And it really intrigued me. So the education side of things, you know, and at that point in my career, even though I had the production, uh, there was still a lot of education that I needed. But then what I realized is by getting involved, I met more and more people. Uh, each of those individuals were able to help me, you know, become a better broker. Candidly, many of them became refer- referral sources. And over time, I just kept working my way through uh, the system. And the more positions that I took on, the more people that I met. And it's one of the things I love about this business. You can learn so many things from other brokers and other people to find out, are, what do you do with your investments? You know, how do you handle switching companies? How do you handle um, you know, focusing maybe on different areas, bringing in partners? The more I had those conversations, the more I realized I love 
this opportunity. And you know, at a minimum, it was just the two conferences a year and then maybe one or two you know, committee meetings beforehand. But as time went on, I realized that I'd love to give back. And, but I thought it was going to take a lot longer uh, in the business before I would even consider running. Uh, but when I was asked to run for this position, my initial reaction was, now I still have two kids in high school. Um, you know, that's, it's just not the time. But they said, all right, Pat, let's walk through this. By the time you actually win, you then would be VP for a year, then president-elect for a year, then you become president. So really, when you look at it, your kids will be seniors in college by the time you're actually president. Well, because of COVID, it actually was even later because I was vice president for one year, then president-elect for two years, and then uh, president. So it just could not have lined up more perfectly because I was no longer coaching. I was no longer attending ballets. I was no longer doing all these other things. So I was still able to devote the same amount of time to my business and you know the partnership that I have with uh, my partner. Uh, but at the same time, I was able to travel uh, the country and probably had one-on-one converse, -on -one conversations with over a thousand brokers in that year and a half. And might've just been a couple words here or there, might've just been a hello, but I was blown away with what I learned. And you know the enthusiasm from some of the younger brokers, uh, the expertise from you know the older group, you know, one in, uh, organization or group in particular, I spoke at a group in Kansas City and I was looking at, and there were a couple uh, new members that were in their 20s and there were a couple active members who were in their 80s. And I'm like, where else can you, you know, have an industry where you have almost a 60-year delta between ages, but each of those folks are still active? Um, that to me was just eye-opening. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't retire from this industry, because it is exciting. It still provides you opportunities. But to me, I looked at this organization and like, man, this really got me to open my eyes and see how wonderful the commercial real estate industry actually is. And more from my standpoint, you know, how great the individuals in SIOR actually are, not only as brokers, but as people. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems yeah. like, you know, obviously you have the, the production goal and, and the, the high ethical standard in order you have to be held to as part of the organization. So just by the fact that they are part of the organization, I'm sure that's just the type of caliber of individual that, you know, operates within that sphere. So 100%. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's great. I'd love to see the, the 20 to the 80 year olds, uh, uh, converse over industrial to see, you know, a lot of knowledge and wisdom. And then they're just wet behind the ears type deal <laughs> coming yeah, into the, the space. Hustle. I'm sure it's hustle. I, yeah, I mean, Those kids hustle. I'm sure. That's, oh, I mean, it's, my yeah. Yeah. No, the, it's, it's, the two 80 year olds are both, I mean, they still do a little bit of brokerage, but they're developers at this point in time. And yeah. the wisdom that they have and the energy that they still have, it's, it, it was just almost mind boggling, to be honest with you. I looked yeah. at, you know, my parents didn't even make it past 76. And I'm like, and these guys are actually going out and working every single day in their early to mid 80s. It's like, God bless you. This is fantastic. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Patrick, as we start rounding out the podcast here, I just want to say it was an honor and I really loved uh, 
your background, the stories, and uh, just how that you came to be where you are in the commercial real estate. Um, I know one of the questions we always ask our guests, Raphael and I are both avid readers, uh, and so we like to ask, what is one of the most impactful books you've ever read? Uh, and it doesn't have to pertain to commercial real estate or even business. It could be something personal that you uh, enjoyed reading that maybe changed the trajectory of your life. Or uh, is there any a book that might so, stand out to so you? It's more of an author. Um, and okay. I don't want to go too much on the, the religious side, but there is a writer by the name of Matthew Kelly. And Matthew Kelly uh, is a business consultant as well as a Catholic uh, speaker and writer. And he has written so many different books that basically, in essence, have you sit down and say, all right, how am I making decisions? Am I making decisions to be the best version of myself? You know, whether it is, you know, how I exercise, how I eat, or how I treat other people. And uh, I can tell you, you know, the first 10 books of his that I read transformed my life. And uh, I will be eternally grateful uh, to him, you know, just because it got me closer in my faith, but at the same time, it also helped me become better at what I do for my clients. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. And, and having that perspective of continuous improvement, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, individuals out there that write books that can be that impactful. And I, I, I to be honest, I have not heard of him, but I'm, I'm looking forward to adding a few of those to my, to my list. I always get the audible credits every month. Okay. Yep. So maybe one that I add on to the list. Yeah, he had, awesome. I would say good start to some of his business books. Uh, a couple of them are uh, probably from about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, we actually had him speak at one of our conferences in SIOR. And it was interesting because I had seen him maybe a year earlier at a uh, kind of a religious conference. And I saw him speak from the business standpoint. I'm like, my goodness, this makes sense from all aspects of life. So it was <laughs> actually very eye opening. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, Patrick, we, obviously, we greatly appreciate your time on the podcast. You provide a lot of great insights, and we're really thankful for, for the time we spent together. One thing we like to do near the end of our podcast episode is to request that our uh, guests contribute something what, to what we call the commercial real estate treasure chest. It's a repository of resources that we usually make available to our audience, and usually people contribute you know, helpful PDFs, spreadsheets, or really anything that they feel would be of value to the audience. So if you don't mind, I was wondering if you could would you share what you're willing to contribute today. So I will figure out you know, what I can provide, but I was thinking a little bit differently. And that is one of the most important things that I have done to, and I didn't start doing it to generate additional business, but it was the importance of giving back. And I have served on outside of SIOR five or six different boards in the past 15 years. Not one of them did I join to provide or to get clients or to do business. But every single one of them has generated significant business for me. Because when you're sitting there, kind of going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, the difference between cold calling and you know, providing additional information. When people get a chance to know you as an individual, then they might, you know, six months later say, hey, Pat, do you do such and such? And the answer is, well, yes, that's exactly what I do. So from a give back to the group here, again, it's not a PDF, and you know, I do apologize for that. But what I would say is if everyone 
as a passion. Figure out what you're passionate about, whether it's a nonprofit or a way to give back, and then just get involved and not involved with the idea of generating business, but get involved because you know you enjoy it and it makes you a better person. I can, with probably a 99% certainty, say, you know, within a couple of years, that's going to end up generating business for you. And again, how many businesses in this world can you give back with no ulterior motive and then ultimately have it turn into business in the future? Uh, that has blessed me over and over again, you know, over the past 20 years. And, and that's probably the best thing that I could say of everything in our industry. Get involved with a board that you're passionate about. And it's amazing how your life will change. That's phenomenal yeah. advice, really. Yeah. Uh, and and, and I, yeah. I, I echo that as well. I think it's, I, it's amazing how if you put people in a room that are passionate about the same things, it's amazing what what can happen, right? Obviously, from yes. the co the contribution side of being able to support a cause that you're really passionate about, but also the fact that you know you you have shared values with people, and people like doing business with people that they like and trust, and so you're building those strong relationships, and they know that you're 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 rooted in in this in a set of strong values that that are a positive in nature, and so it makes it makes complete sense why you would generate business from it. So, it's yeah. been honestly how I've generated, you know. Or not generating, because I'm like, and I don't want to look at it as generating. Oh, business, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's connections, and our business is great because it gives us the opportunity to really learn and meet and just do a ton with other individuals. That's amazing advice. Couldn't agree more, Patrick. Again, it's been an honor. Uh, I loved hearing all your insights and everything. I've learned quite a bit, and I know other people are going to want to. Uh, Reach, maybe reach out to you to do deals or uh, maybe ask a few questions. Is there a particular way you'd like them to contact you? LinkedIn is the easiest. Uh, that is, you know, I've definitely, you know, because of SOR become more active, you know, on Twitter and specifically on LinkedIn. So that's the easiest way to find me, but okay. I'm also more than open. Um, my telephone is 412-759-4991. And I love talking to people who are passionate about this industry. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate that. And what we'll go ahead and do as well. So if you guys are listening to this in a podcast format, we'll include all the, that information in the description. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, it'll also be in the description as well. So Patrick, thanks again so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. It does make a huge impact in our ability to reach a broader audience. Along with that, if you guys are listening to this in a podcast format, Spotify, Apple, really any type of audio uh, device, please, please, please leave a five-star review. It does make a really big impact in our ability to reach a broader audience, and we greatly appreciate the support. So thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time.